Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can get links to each week's columns, newsletter, and podcast in the show notes for each episode, or you can go sign up and get those delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the newsletter sign-up link. I've left links to that as well as the columns that are that happened this week as well as the newsletter in the show notes, and you can go to that at any time. Finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And those five-star reviews that you guys are leaving really do help listeners and readers like you find me in the iTunes algorithm, and I always look forward to reading that feedback. So in this week's show, we're going to do the weekly dive into the coronavirus numbers and then go through some of the political fallout that's happening as a result of those numbers. Specifically, we're going to focus on Florida this week. Governor DeSantis is taking victory laps right now, and we're going to go through a little bit of why he actually has a point towards the end of that segment. And then finally, we're going to jump in the really fun segment this week, talking about Joe Biden's latest gaffe this week and what it means for his campaign moving forward. So like I said, we're going to start off this week with the top line numbers for the coronavirus, sort of the place where we start each week right now. We continue to improve on testing just on week on a week by week basis, and that's it's a very good thing. I keep pushing this where you have to compare what we're doing on a week to week basis and then look back and compare what we're doing on a month to month basis. So right now we have run 14.2 million tests as a country and 2.7 of those came within the last week alone. So we're getting close to breaking that 3 million tests a week mark. We started May, so this month, we started with 6.5 million tests run overall. And so month to month, if you go from the beginning of the month to uh, the end of day, Sunday, as I'm recording this, we've run 7.6 million tests in May alone, and the month is not over. We've tested more people in May than all previous months combined, which is just an astonishing feat that we've managed to accomplish in a very short amount of time. And the month, like I said, the month is not finished, so we're going to easily blow that out of the water. I think I think it's um, it, it's an open question of whether or not we could hit 10 million tests run in the span of one month, which is great news and is also great news if you're looking forward to the summer months when every state's going to be close to fully being fully open at that point. So if we're running 20, 30 million tests in the span of a month or more, you're going to know that we have made massive progress in a very short amount of time. So that's sort of a way, you, if you look back and you see what we're doing just overall, you see the progress that we're making. A lot of times what's happened with the coronavirus is is the, the daily focus that people have had, whether because of the press conferences with the president or with the governors and mayors, what they do on a daily basis has sort of swallowed up what happens over a longer period of time. And 
to get a sense of progress, you need to measure sort of what we're doing on a weekly and monthly basis, as well as daily. It is important to measure the what's happening on a daily basis. And we are making progress on that daily basis. We're averaging around 375,000 tests a day. We've hit over 400,000 more than once. And so we are hitting very high testing numbers. And it is more likely than not we're going to eventually work our way up towards the 500,000 range. That just seems to be the trend line of where we're headed. We hit a space, usually the way this has worked, is that we have a period of time of about two to three weeks where the testing numbers will plateau a little bit. And then all of a sudden you'll see a bump up to the next level where we are as new testing methodology works its way into the system. So we are making astonishing progress on that front, and we continue to make that. Overall, out of those 14.2 million tests that we've run, 1.6 million are positive cases. That doesn't mean we have 1.6 million active cases. It just means that we've tested and gotten a positive result on 1.6 million people. And that's probably not exactly 1.6 million people because you probably also got some some double testing in there. People who uh, people who tested positive, recovered, and then they may have tested again and also and can, and showed another positive. We've seen that people do not get the virus again. What happens is that dead virus that's in their body that they've defeated may show up as a positive marker. So we do know that we are double testing some people to get a better sense of how their recovery is coming along, and we are also testing some people, like the President of the United States, from all accounts, it looks like we're testing him every day, which is a good thing. I would like to see that rolled out to the rest of Congress and other high positions like that, both across the state and even the local levels. You have to have your leadership intact in a lot of these organizations. The big number this week that everyone is focusing on is the number of deaths. And you may have even seen the the front page of the New York Times this week where they came out with their headline talking about how we have almost hit 100,000 deaths. And then they proceeded to run the names and ages of everyone who has died in the United States as a result of the virus. So that is, they are preempting the narrative here. We have not hit 100,000 yet. We are at 92,000, and based on the current rate, we will probably hit 100,000, if if not by the end of this next week, early next week. So it may be Monday, a week from Monday, where you see us hit that mark. So you're seeing some of these media organizations, like the New York Times, jump out in front of this narrative and you know get people to focus on the 100,000 mark. And they're right, it is a big number. There's no getting around that. It's They're trying to set it up in a way, though, where it's sort of like it's 9-11-like, where you put all of the names out there and you're posturing the story to make it look like it's a disaster on par with something like that. And it is a disaster, but this is a distinct narrative being pushed because at the same time, we are also making significant progress And the bulk of those deaths happened in the New York Times backyard, in the places like New York, Connecticut, and New Jersey. That little corridor there, that is where the bulk of these deaths took place. The rest of the country handled this remarkably well when you have factor out those three states in particular. 
So, but that's the way they're trying to position this as a national story of 100,000. It did happen, and that is true, but there is more to the story than that. Particularly when you start factoring in things like the case fatality rate. The case fatality rate is where you take the number of total tests that we have that are positive, you take that number, and then you divide into that number the total number of deaths. Now, we know instinctively that this is a wrong number because we know that in the number of positive cases, it doesn't include your asymptomatic people who are not getting tested, and we know that there are a lot of those, and as well as the people who were previously who had this and didn't know that they had it. So there's a lot of people who have had this virus outside of the 1.6 million people who have tested positive. And so the number of people who have had it is going to be much higher but that mean, but just with what we know, the case fatality rate is around 6% in the United States. Specifically, it's 5.98%. So 6%, just an easy way to remember it. And so that means of the tests, of the cases that we've had, of the 1.6, about 6% of those 1.6 million are ending in a fatality. The worldwide case mortality rate is 6.48%, so we are below the world rate, and we're also below several other countries along that line. And even if you factor in that, because that's that's the whole country, that's the whole United States, if you start pulling out, if you pull out the main three of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, that case fatality rate for the rest of the country is going to drop dramatically. So... Not every state and not every community is experiencing this the same way. So just pitching the overall numbers doesn't tell you the story of how people are experiencing this virus overall. And that's why you're also, because if this was just a thing where 100,000 people had died and it was spread evenly across the country, you would see a much different narrative set up. But that's not what has happened. People have experienced this dramatically depending upon where they lived in the country. So our case fatality rate is lower than the rest of the world. It, the If you get in your, to the case fatality rate where you start factoring out the big players in this of New York and some of the others, you get a lower mortality rate than that. So the key thing to watch, because we're reopening right now, the key thing to watch is that you need to watch the rates for hospitalizations and the positivity rate of the virus. You need to see if this is an outbreak that's occurring here during the reopening phase, you'll see two things. You'll see the number of positive cases start going up, even though we're testing more. So the share of the number of positive tests will go up, even though, you know, up until now, if you've seen more positive cases come in, it's usually because we've been testing more. But if you're having an outbreak, the number of people who are getting the virus will outpace that testing. So you'll start seeing that mark go up. That's not happening. The positive rate is generally going down across the country. And then, apart from that, you also need to see the hospitalization rate go up. That is, more people are going into the hospital as a result of this virus than you would have expected if you were not having an outbreak. So those are the two key factors that you need to know if we're going to have an outbreak. What what a lot of the media stories are covering is they'll say something along the lines of a whole lot of new cases came in today just a day after such and such happened as a part of reopening. And that is a very bad way to report this because the number of cases that come in as a positive case and deaths are both lagging indicators. 
They do not tell you what is happening on a day-to-day basis. It's not like you go out to a party and then you get COVID-19 if you test that very day. That's not what happens. It takes a little while for this virus to incubate, to incubate, I mean, and then show up on a test. So everything that you see testing-wise is a lagging indicator. Now, we are at the coming towards the end of May, and I said last week that this week and next week are going to be very key on the data front of telling us what's happened and over the course of this month, and how are the states doing on reopening. And right now, if you look around, there's no sign that there's a widespread outbreak. Scott Gottlieb, former... Um, former FDA commissioner, he said that hospitalization rates have ticked up a little bit. And if you look at his chart, it's really flat. But the reason he says that it's ticked up is because before this week, there was a general slope down. And now it looks like it's reverted back to a little bit like two weeks ago, but it's not a ton. It just looks like hospitalization rate across the country is mostly flat. So that is still sustainable on a reopening basis. You don't want to see a major spike there where we have to deal with a second attempt to squash a curve. That is the big fear here. When people are talking about a second wave, they're talking about another event where you have to get society to crush another curve. And hopefully you don't have to do that because you can test, find the people who are sick, and then get them quarantined. But that is the fear there, that you end up in a situation where people are having to shut things down again, if not because of the government ordered, because Donald Trump has already said that he's not going to shut the economy down again, which I totally get. You don't want to do that again in the middle of an election year like this. But I also know that if a second wave does hit, even if the federal government doesn't do anything or the state governments don't do anything, people will still curb their action and that will tank the economy. So there is a lot of individual action in here that's going to determine what happens on a if we have a second wave. The second thing that people have talked about here is is how these different states have responded because what we're noticing is that the death rate though it is going down it's going down at a slower rate than what we anticipated previously. So there is a long tail to this. And deaths are descending but it's slow. So statistically this just looks like a much slower slope down as we go come off the top of the curve. And that's a good thing. It just means that there's going to be more deaths over this period of time, which is why you've seen all the estimates tick up from the sixty to 70,000 range to the 100,000 to 200,000 range that we're in now. We know we're going to break 100,000. It's just a matter of how far we go over that mark. So we've started looking at some of these states and what they're doing as a way to explain what's happening. We know now, since we have enough testing, that masks, hand washing, and social distancing are buying us more time and allowing us to reopen. That is slowing the the push of the virus across the nation. We know that we cannot stay closed down forever. And so waiting until a vaccine is just a pipe dream. And I know that there are there are officials in the rest of the country who are saying, you know, stool, schools can't reopen until we have a vaccine or these other things can't reopen until we have a vaccine. And that is just something that the rest of society cannot wait to happen. So you have to rely on these basic hand washing and social distancing measures to keep things and keep the virus in check until we get those the rest of society reopen. And so 
that's sort of the situation that we're in. And as that's happening, you're we're starting to see sort of these culture wars beginning to reopen up. And for whatever reason, the main focus has been Florida in the media. It's been sort of weird to me to watch that Florida has been the focal point of this because just frankly, the virus has not been a focal point in the state of Florida. That has not been an issue that they've had to deal with, just like some of these other states, especially in the Northeast and the West Coast. So Florida is not this bad state that everyone's making it out to be, and Governor DeSantis is getting completely hosed in the media. And that is that is almost selling short of how badly he's being treated. Uh, and I'm going to play a clip here of him and sort of talk through it a little bit because every word that he says in this is accurate and he's currently under fire because people are saying that he's manipulated the data and that didn't happen either that is a complete and total joke of what actually happened but we're gonna play this clip here of DeSantis because it really just cuts through and lays out what's happened in Florida and how they've done with all without all this spin that's taken place so here's Governor DeSantis responding to a question from reporters our data is available. Our data is transparent. In fact, Dr. Burks has talked multiple times about how Florida has the absolute best data. So any insinuation otherwise is just typical partisan narrative trying to be spun. And part of the reason is that because you got a lot of people in your profession who waxed poetically for weeks and weeks about how Florida was going to be just like New York. Wait two weeks, Florida's going to be next. Just like Italy, wait two weeks. Well, hell, we're eight weeks away from that, and it hasn't happened. Not only do we have a lower death rate, well, we have way lower deaths generally, we have a lower death rate than the Acela Corridor, D.C., everyone up there. We have a lower death rate than the Midwest, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio. But even in our region, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida has the lower death rate. And I was the number one landing spot from tens of thousands of people leaving the number one hot zone in the world to come to my state. So we've succeeded, and I think that people just don't want to recognize it because it challenges their narrative, it challenges their assumption, so they got to try to find a boogeyman. Maybe it's that there are black helicopters circling the Department of Health. If you believe that, um, I got a bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to sell you. Last question. So that's the clip. And if you go through the data, everything he says is accurate in that clip. Absolutely every last single thing. And he was responding to a series of questions because this is about whether or not Florida had manipulated data. And that's not what happened at all. They didn't withhold any specific data and they're not misreporting what is happening. What happened in the particular case that everyone's talking about is that there was a mistake in how part of the data was uploaded, and so they took down part of it because it was inaccurate and then re-uploaded it about 80 minutes later. So there was a data entry error. It's not like people were hiding what was happening. And if you watch some of the clips of various parts of the media talking about it, it's clear they have no idea what happened technically in this case. And this wouldn't be the first time this has happened. We have seen many other states have difficulties uploading their data and having various issues, adjusting for this and adjusting for that just because something was misreported. These are not some big form of a conspiracy theory happening here where states are hiding what's happening. I haven't seen a single state that I would say was hiding what they're doing. The worst state 
when it comes to data collection is technically California. And that's just because they're awful at data collection. With all their tech, they, they, they collect data on the coronavirus about like they run elections. So whatever information you're getting is probably going to be a little old just due to the fact they've got, they've got a lot of geography, they've got a lot of counties, they've got a lot of people. I get all that, but they are still probably the worst when it comes to reporting. And if you don't have to take my word for that, you can go watch the last two or three months, the COVID tracking project, the saga of what they've had to do to try to get accurate information out of California by itself. For a while, they're even talking about taking California out of their data because they thought it felt it was so unreliably reported because you would get sometimes, you know, a full report of two or three days all in one shot and no one knew how to handle that because it was affecting what the trend lines were on a day-to-day basis. And that was just, you know, one of the things. But getting back to Florida here for a second, what he said is is right. Florida has responded correctly. The problem that they had was not that they spread the virus themselves, but that they had people from New York and some of these other big cities who started out and helped spread the virus and took it to places like Florida. And so they had to deal with that along with everything else. And one of the main things that DeSantis did that was overwhelmingly good is that he made sure to keep sick people out of nursing homes. That is a key difference that he took. He did that early on, and and when you compare that to New York, it's ended up saving a lot of people. We don't know how many people, but we know it saved a lot because we've seen what happens when you send sick people to nursing homes, because that's what... Andrew Cuomo did. It was an order from him early on to send six people in the hospital back to nursing homes, which more than likely ended up killing a lot more people than it needed to. And if if just this comparison here with Florida and New York, the media keeps focusing on Georgia and Florida and their reopening plans and how they're just bad and terrible. And more than one journalist has said that these governors have blood on their hands. And it's if you compare it... Put it this way, if Andrew Cuomo, a Democratic governor of New York, if he was a Republican and he had made the decisions he had where he said, we're going to send sick people and send, who, who come from nursing homes, who come to a hospital, we find out they have the disease, we're going to send them back to the nursing homes, and that's how it's going to spread throughout there. We're not going to do anything with our public transit, so all the subways, buses, taxis, everything else, they're not going to be cleaned, and we're not going to provide protective equipment to any of the employees. And then, on top of that, if that same Republican governor who took all those decisions then went on Fox News and yucked it up with his brother, you would see an unending tirade from the national media about how this was a disgrace. And they'd be right in that instance. It would be a disgrace. But that is what Andrew Cuomo has done. And I get Amy and I early on said he was doing a good job, and that but that was mostly just due to his press conferences. He was running good press conferences. When you start boiling it down to actual policy decisions, Cuomo may be one of the worst governors in America. And if he's one of the worst, we know de Blasio is one of the worst mayors. And that's just a fact of the matter. If you're going to say that Republican governors out of Georgia and Florida have blood on their hands and they have good results, then what are you going to say about places like New York where these decisions were taken? That's what's happened here. Cuomo goes on CNN, yucks it up with his brother Andrew Cuomo, and everybody just laughs at all their brotherly inside jokes. So that's just disgusting. It's a clear conflict of interest, and CNN keeps doing it because it makes for good TV. 
no news is ever broken in those segments. So that is, you know, that's what's happened with Florida. DeSantis is right. He's getting hosed by a narrative in the media, and that's that's just what's happened. Now, things could change here as we reopen and we get new data in, but right now, if you're looking at the data in Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, and other places, there's not a massive spike that people were fearful of. We're seeing a pretty steady continuance of what was happening before after we crushed the curve. So as long as things keep steady, the the medical system can handle that that you know that steady flow of patients. The thing about you know knocking down the curve, it wasn't that you were going to defeat the virus. The point was to stretch out the number of cases that you were going to take in into a longer period of time. And for whatever reason, that seems to have been forgotten by the media. And it seems to be forgotten by a lot of people on social media. The point of shutdowns was to give testing enough time to catch up and to allow us a chance to figure out how this virus works, how it spread, and to adjust accordingly. Well, we've got all the answers to that now. We have masks going out by the millions. We have people washing their hands. We have social distancing in place. We have revamped the entirety of the retail economy to deal with a infectious disease. So you can't say that we should stay shut down in those situations when the cases are flat because we've done what flattening the curve was needed to do. We flattened the curve, and now it's about giving the medical system enough time to slowly work through these cases instead of all at once. That was the point of that. People seem to have forgotten that, and now they think that flattening the curve means defeating the virus. Well, that's not going to happen. That wouldn't happen in an ideal world. You couldn't keep everybody inside and expect a virus to just simply go away. That's just not going to happen. So there's a case I think you can made, and I think will be made sometime in the near future that Andrew Cuomo's policies help seed this virus across the rest of the country. I know I can point to instances where I know in Tennessee where we had infections break out in this state because of somebody who was from New York. I have another friend who is pretty well convinced that people in her family got infected because people came from New York to a funeral. So this this is... This is what happened. New York didn't control its problem. The rest of the states did. And the reason I think you should single them out for this is because we know California and Washington were able to control the outbreak there. They have a lot. When you combine all the people there, they have a lot more people there than you have up in the Northeast and also over a much larger geographically spread area. So there's just a case to me that that a lot of bad decisions were made in the Northeast and in the rest of the country Everybody made the right decisions and the virus spread, but it spread at a much lower rate when you compare it there. So the other thing you have to combine there is the federal government's FDA and CDC testing debacle that slowed us down early on. If you have that fixed, you have probably a better response, but you still probably have bad cases in New York because of the bad decisions by Cuomo and de Blasio. So that's all I've got for that. DeSantis is right. He's getting hosed. So if you're seeing these news stories about Florida and Georgia, they're just not right. I'm going to link to a piece in the show notes that it, it's too long for me to talk through, but it is fantastic by a Twitter account named Polymath. He is fantastic, and he's a data guy. And he just went through and debunked every last single thing about Florida. And the, he's right. He has citations to prove 
absolutely everything. He points to the actual numbers on the government websites. He talks through the problems that Ford had with his data. He talked through all the bad reporting in the media. It's all laid out there. So if you don't like his conclusions, you can go look through all the citations that he makes. So I'll link to that. Make sure to check that out. And then when we get back from the break, we'll jump into Joe Biden and his big gaffe this week. Joe Biden has finally emerged from his basement cave. And as soon as he did that, he immediately had a bad week. Just life with Joe Biden. He was giving an interview with Charlemagne the God. He's the host of The Breakfast Club, who you should know by now because he's an incredible interviewer, and he's made waves in politics several times now with some of his interviews of big-time Democrats. You, His show is big in the black community and just big in general, and you should know him because of these previous cases. The, in 2016, he showed up with an interview with Hillary Clinton, and in that one, he gave us the great hit of Hillary Clinton enjoying carrying hot sauce in her purse like Beyonce, because that was the year that Beyonce released one of her songs that included that line, and so Hillary Clinton decided that she also kept hot sauce in her purse. So that part of that, you know, just blatant form of pandering and just, you know, grossness in general, that all got called out there, and that was on The Breakfast Club. So that was courtesy of 2016. So he came back, Charlemagne the God and his, the rest of his co-hosts came back bigger and better this year. They were responsible for Elizabeth Warren's early flame out when she came out with the very first thing she decided to lead off her presidential campaign of the DNA tests when we learned that she was potentially, you know, one one thousandth and twenty fourth, I believe it was potentially uh, Native American. And then she tried to assert, you know, that that meant that she was Native American and everybody had to point out to her that. You know, if you're relying on a blood test to prove that you are a Native American, that's kind of racist. So, you know, that was Elizabeth Warren. And so she went on The Breakfast Club to talk to them. And at one point, Charlamagne the, the God said, oh, you know, you're kind of like a the, an early version of uh, Rachel Dolezal, the person who pretended to be black. And he was right. She was. So he nuked Elizabeth Warren there. And he also ended up, <laughs> Kamala Harris also went on the show, and she just, because it's Kamala Harris and she's bad at interviews, she flamed out in general. She couldn't answer really any questions that he had. And now we have Joe Biden. So a lot of people have clipped down what Biden said to this to just the the brief portion where, you know, he says, you, you ain't black if you're comparing his record and Trump's record. And I get that. That is the key part here. But I'm going to play a little bit of a longer clip of it. Not too much more, but it gives you a little bit of context to what's happening in this because the interview is wrapping up and they're talking about Biden's vice presidential pick. And um, Charlemagne is talking about how he, the black community, might be expecting a black female to be the vice president. And Biden gives this answer. And you hear a third voice. That third voice that you're going to hear in this clip is one of Biden's staffers. They're trying to wrap up this interview. And as a part of that, I think you, it helps trigger the exchange that happens. So here's a little bit of a longer clip that gives you some context of what was heading into the Biden gaffe. Well, I saw the day that a news report broke that uh, Amy Klobuchar was being vetted. And a lot of people on social media, they're not too happy about that. And um, 
It's because they want your running mate to be a black woman. I don't know if you saw the op-ed in the Washington Post by some of the leading black women voices in this country. And they feel since black women are such a loyal voting block and black people saved your political life in the primaries this year. They have things they want from you. And one of them is a black woman running mate. What, what do you say to them? What I say to them is that I'm not acknowledging anybody who is being considered, but I guarantee you there are multiple black women being considered. Multiple. Well, you know, Thanks so much. That's really our time. I apologize. You can't do that to black media. You I can't do that to white media and black media because my wife has to go on at six o'clock. Okay. Oh, uh oh, I'm in trouble. Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. I a, will. It's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more okay. questions, but I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump. And you ain't black. It don't have nothing to do with Trump. It has to do with the fact I want something for my community. I would love to see Take you. Take a look at my record, man. I extended the voting racks 25 years. I have a record that is second to none. The NAACP has endorsed me every time I've run. The war, I mean, come on. Take a look at the record. All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Anyway, thanks. I will come back. All right. I look Please. forward to seeing you in person. Okay, absolutely. Okay, pal. Thanks a lot. I thank appreciate you. it. I think my favorite part of that is listening to the staffer try to end the call multiple times. You, you can almost hear and just feel that staffer's face turning red, just trying to end the interview to stop all of the bad things that are happening all at once that you can't stop because it's a runaway train. That train's name is Joe Biden, who refuses to stop talking at the end of an interview. And, you know, there's a lot of th- people have pointed out a lot of things like, talking about how Biden's answer is kind of racist because you're you're assuming that people all have to blow, to vote the same way because of their skin color and along with those various things. But for Biden, I wouldn't call this just racist per se. This is just him being who he is. This is not the first time he's made a statement like this. And during the 2012 election, he was the one who told an audience that Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan were going to be taking black Americans back to chains. And that's a paraphrase of what he said then. But this is just, this is stuff that he said over time. And he thinks that he has the leeway to say that. And I think it's interesting because when you hear this full clip here and you hear sort of how it all comes together, Charlemagne points out that Biden's entire campaign was saved by black voters in South Carolina and across the South. They saved his campaign. Without them, Biden would have flamed out in South Carolina and we would be talking about a guy who never won a single presidential primary in all the times that he ran for office. So the point here is that Biden, in a sense, the Charlemagne is trying to ferret out this sense that Biden owes this group, and he owes them a favor and a say in what happens with the vice presidential nominee. And he is right, because there are reports out that they are vetting Amy Klobuchar to be the vice presidential pick, which is the most vanilla pick you can go with. And I know why they're doing that. It's probably a smart pick, but... If you're doing this after a single voting constituency saved your entire campaign in a primary and is now asking, well, we save you, and now what are you going to do? You're going to have to give a better answer than what he gave there. You can't just fall back on your old record. And 
Biden, there's two points to make out of this that are apart from all the racism, racism angle and telling people how to vote on the basis of their skin color. That's a whole separate thing that I'm not going to get into here. Biden has this tendency, and I get into this in my column that's going to come out later on Monday. Biden has this tendency where he always fights people whenever he's challenged about anything. That's why he hadn't won a primary up until this, because whenever he would get challenged on any single thing of his record, he would always get very combative and start either yelling at people or attacking them. And he was doing that here because he was feeling as if he was attacked. And so he launched a tirade back and that, that's not always what was happening. They were basically just wrapping up an interview. And so Biden felt so insecure about this that he felt the need to go on the attack. And this is not new. The, like I said, he he's combative in all his previous campaigns. Earlier, I believe it was either this year or late last year, he he called a, a caucus goer fat who was challenging him on something. And he said, listen here, fat. And he obviously got his words mixed up, but it was hilarious. Um, and this is just what, what Biden does. He always launches back and attacks the person who challenges him. And uh, in a presidential politics basis, this is sort of an easy weakness. I don't think a lot of people have no, have talked about this with Trump because that is his absolutely favorite thing to do, to get under another person's skin. And he can do that with Biden. It is very easy to get under Biden's skin and to get him highly combative and to start swinging wildly about on the stage. And the thing is, if you're going to do that, it helps if you're on your game. Biden is no longer on his game. He does not have the capacity to sit there and go off the handle like he did at a younger age. He just does not have the capacity to launch into those tirades. So that's the first point. And that's not really surprising to see Biden launch into an attack like that. That's why I don't really fall into the racist angle with this, just because this is Biden being Biden, where he always is combative and always launches back an attack on anyone who challenges him. The second thing here, though, is a little bit more interesting because Biden is effectively running as a third term of the Obama administration. He's not really even promising a fourth term of this, but really running as a true blue third term of the Obama administration. And so he's represented this Obama legacy. And so you see this some with, uh, you're not seeing this basically from Obama or any of his super close advisors, but you are seeing this from his surrogates and staffers of the Obama administration, that whenever any of these challengers or interest groups, even if they're black, if they challenge Biden and challenge one of his policy proposals, sometimes what they've done is they've taken that as a wholesale assault on the entire Obama legacy. So it's not just that it's Biden who's being challenged here, it's Obama. And we saw this, I keep bringing this up, this Politico story, because it was so fascinating when it came out. It was during the summer debates, and everyone at this one debate, I think it was in July, everyone at this debate all did the same thing. They, they basically began every single answer that they gave with, we like Obama, we like the Obama administration, and think he did a lot of things. And then they went into their own policy proposals as a way to quell the anger that was popping up of people who had been talking down to Obama. And the reason that this comes up is that when you're pushing a proposal like Medicare for All, if you want that, you're automatically saying that the Obamacare legacy even though it's, you know, a little over a decade old, that it was an entire failure. 
And so if you're doing that, you're challenging one of those keystones of the Obama era. And there are other things like that. Like if you're saying certain things that Trump has done on immigration are bad, you then also have to point at what the Obama administration did on that, because a lot of this immigration stuff were things that Trump continued from that. And so you get in these these little areas here where where when you challenge Biden on some of this, it's not just that you're challenging him, you're also challenging that Obama legacy. And they do not want to see that repudiated in any way. And so that's sort of what you're also seeing here with these fights in the media trying to make Biden look better is because there's this defense of the Obama legacy. And if you're trying to make a case for the progressive future, it is harder to do that when you're tying yourself, weirdly enough, in a conservative way. You're saying, in a way, you're going to conserve what the Obama administration did while also trying to build off of it, whereas all these other candidates were trying to paint a new progressive future with new policies and new ideas. So it's sort of this weird thing where Biden is having to tie, he wants to, he has to tie himself to the Obama legacy because Biden has absolutely nothing Apart from that, he would not be able to run and win if he did not have his time as vice president. But it's also introduced this other thing to where it's a quasi-conservative position where you're saying, I want to go back to that instead of moving forward with a new idea for the future. And I think that's a, that is inherently a dangerous position to take for any candidate because if you're doing that, if you're saying we're going to go backwards instead of forwards, you have to deal with the questions that come up about why Trump was elected. Because in between that potential third term you're you're running for here, Donald Trump won an election, and it was an outright repudiation of that era. It was a repudiation of Hillary Clinton, and it was a repudiation of many of the Obama-era policies because Trump ran against them, and he ran against them pretty forcefully. And so I think it is fair when you get into these interview situations on The Breakfast Club and other places where they're asking, what are you going to do? You can't just say an Obama third term because there was a vote in between here and there that challenges what that term, those two terms stood for. So you have to have an answer here. And Biden really doesn't have an answer. He just keeps saying, look at my record, look at my record, look at my record. Well, that's great if you've got that record, but you have to provide a path forward. And he really doesn't have that. He's really just trying to run a front porch campaign where he hides out in his basement and doesn't do anything. And a lot of people have said, you know, that's a good thing. Conventional wisdom in D.C. says that that inherently helps Biden. And I don't know if that's true. When you look at Trump and you look at Trump and Biden are similar in this one respect. They're similar in that they both have gaffes. Every time they speak, they're going to say something dumb that's going to make you facepalm or scratch your head. Maybe both at the same time. Who knows? But what Trump does is he is constantly in front of the camera and constantly talking, constantly doing something. And so he has just a variety of them, which means usually not one single event is going to stick in the media. And even if it does, it's not going to last that long as a media cycle. With Biden retreating, what it does is it reduces the number of times he can have these big media encounters. And when you have fewer of those, it ups the cost of how it can hurt you in a campaign by increasing the amount 
that these matter. So basically, Biden is trying to run out the clock here, and if he knows it's going to be a close game, and try to get in the last shot. Well, if you're constantly trying to get in the last shot, and you miss, it's going that position is going to mean more than if you're just jacking up shots. Trump is a little bit like a modern NBA team that's just jacking up three-pointer after three-pointer after three-pointer. Yeah, some of them are going to miss, but if you drill in enough of them, you're going to be able to swamp the other team, whereas Biden is trying to run a slow campaign where you get in, you, you, you have fewer possessions, and you're trying to make those count more. We'll see if it works. Um, I just, But when you have a situation like this where you make a, a gaffe of that size, it matters more because you have fewer chances to make it up later. Now, obviously, we're early on, and there's still many months to go to, to November. And this is not going to cause a seismic shift of black voters away from Biden to Trump. That's just that's not going to happen. What it could do, though, is it could affect margins. Because Obama won black voters above 90%. I'd have to go back and look, but it was like 93, 95% he was winning over in droves. Hillary Clinton didn't hit those margins. She fell below that into around 88%. And so while that is still astronomically high, it also mattered in the margins of some of these very close Midwestern states, places like Pennsylvania, places like Michigan and Wisconsin, when you see a small margin like that drop, it matters in those states. And so if Biden pulls in a Hillary-like number where he's not able to go above 90% and he's sitting there at around 88 89%, that is going to impact his capacity to win some of these close toss-up states. So that's where this matters, to where you turn off voters, and it's not that they go and vote for Trump, it's just that they don't vote for you at all because they don't see a point in going to vote for you, because you think this way about them. So that's how this could come into play later on. It's not that you're going to see a seismic shift of one group to another group. It's that it could affect how many people are turning out overall. So that's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes, or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.